Mr. Tracy Battles move! I'm taking this bomb out of the headlines. I'm rubbing him out. Hey, Tracy, watch out! You take Tracy to me. I say we kill Tracy now. You challenge me, we all go down! Are you gonna arrest me? I wanna know who killed Lips Manless. Not the bad! Not the bad! Big boy, not the bad! I know, and I'm gonna miss you. But all's fair in love and business. Whose side are you on? The side I'm always on. Okay, boys, let's go. And you, guilty of attempting to bribe an officer of the law? She does some nifty undercover work. I think Tracy drives you crazy, doesn't he? I want Tracy dead! Tracy, let's go! Good luck. You have just said goodbye to oxygen. Aren't you gonna frisk me? Stupid cop. Tracy? Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We have a wonderful evening's entertainment lined up for you, one that will provide several hours of pleasurable relaxation and diversion for you and your family. There are always wonderful new pictures to see, delightful snacks to nibble, a gay, pleasant evening for all. We hope you have a wonderful time. Five, four, three, two, one, showtime! Calling Dick Tracy, calling Dick Tracy. There's big trouble on the wrist radio. Five of the city's deadliest hoods lie dead in a downtown garage, and their boss, Lips Manless, will soon be number six. Big Boy Caprice is on the rampage, with his number one gun, Flat Top, loose on the streets. Big Boy plans to destroy his gangland opposition and unite all the tough guys in town. Pruneface, Mumbles, Itchy, Numbers, and the rest. In an organized reign of terror, just one man stands in Big Boy's way, Dick Tracy. Soon the ace detective will be hit from all sides by the ferocious big boy himself, by breathless Mahoney, the sizzling chanteuse who wants to snag Tracy away from his curl, Tess Trueheart, and by a mysterious faceless figure, the Blank, who may have found the ultimate way to end Tracy's crime-stopping career for good. Yes! Dick Tracy from 1990. That's what we're <laughs> here to discuss today, but just who are we? Well, we are the hosts of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. I'm Adam. And I'm Michael. I had a flat top in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> you were halfway there. I know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so this is exciting. This is actually uh, a fun way for us to branch out a little bit from our main show. And while this is not a comic book film per se, it is a comic strip film that was collected into comic book form. I've actually been reading some Dick Tracy comics I picked up at a comic book store over the weekend. So how did you even find them? It like was I crazy. I was like googling and I was trying to find stuff, and I was like, I went to a couple of my comic book shops and was like, Dick Tracy comics? Are you crazy? I was like, I guess not. All right, I'll <laughs> look somewhere else. Yeah, I actually I was going through just the discount bins that all comic book stores have, and there was a Dick Tracy comic there for twenty five cents. It was that's 
That's awesome. Deal. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, now we, before we get into all the ins and outs of this movie, oh man, it's going to be so exciting to talk about. Uh, we want to give you a little bit of that comic strip history because Dick Tracy premiered in 1931. This character is almost 90 years old. Wow, it's o- older than Batman and Superman. That's oh, pretty yeah. Cool. And he actually was created by a guy named Chester Gould. And that first strip, strangely enough, was an actual origin story that showed how Tracy joined the force after his girlfriend and fiance, Tess Trueheart's father, was murdered in front of him by bank robbers. Or just robbers, I guess. <laughs> they were... they. Uh, Mr. Trueheart actually ran a delicatessen, so not so much a bank. But yeah, so it's a really interesting story there. Uh, But this is the thing. While this character premiered in 1931, Dick Tracy, as a rule, was always a contemporary detective. He was always operating in whatever the modern time he was being published in. So Chester Gould, he actually wrote the strip up until 1977. Then he retired and he handed it over to this guy named Max Allen Collins, who was just a super fan growing up. And they had struck up a a correspondence, you know, back in the old days, sending letters back and forth from the time that guy was a teenager. And by the time he was an adult, he was basically groomed to take over the strip. And he was the one who was writing it at the time of this film. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he, he wrote it for 46 years and kept it current every time. That's pretty amazing. As a comic book reader, that's that's impressive. Yeah, single creator taking it that long. And really, the way he did it was he was using true crime as inspiration. Hey, maybe we'll get some of those true crime podcast fans. That's the biggest uh, market out there right now. It sure is. But instead, he, what he would do is he would insert these grotesque villains as the perpetrators of the crimes. But, you know, like... The Lindbergh baby being kidnapped, very famous back in the day, Charles Lindbergh. Well, he had a whole story based on that, just changed the names and who was involved, you know, things like that. But the thing I find the most interesting about that is, what is Dick Tracy's most iconic gadget? The wristwatch, obviously, right? That's right. He's got his two-way wrist radio, but that actually was not introduced into the comics until 1946. Hmm. Yeah. It's so, interesting because it was that's right at the end of World War II, and I mm-hmm. wonder if it, that was some sort of influence on it. Well, I'm sure just technology, yeah, it was definitely developing for the war and just in general. I think in pop culture, people were getting interested. And so he created a character who was a scientist who started coming up with all these gadgets. Now, Dick Tracy, like we say, comic strip, two-dimensional But he started getting popular enough after all those years. In the late 30s and the 40s, they started developing these Dick Tracy serials and movies. So there was uh, the main star of those was a guy named Ralph Bird. And so he became known as, you know, the man who was Dick Tracy. And so he was in a bunch of those uh, movies, you know, programs that were running in movie theaters. And then in the 50s, after that had died out a little bit, then they started up a television series starring Ralph Bird. It didn't last very long, but he was around for that. And then in the 60s, William Dozier, how do you know that name, Michael? Oh, I know that. Uh, Same bad time, same bad channel. 
Yeah, what, what was he? Uh, what, what he's was William the producer Dun- of the Batman 1966 series, but he's also the voice of the narrator in Batman. Oh, that, that's right. You're yeah. right. And wow. So he at the time, since Batman was such a hit, and then he had produced Green Hornet, he mm-hmm. said, "Well, I want to do a Wonder Woman series." And there's a famous pilot you can find online for a very weird Wonder Woman television series before Linda Carter got hers. And really? Also, wow. yeah, he was going to do a Superman show. He was trying to do a new one of those. Uh, and then the only one he really managed to get a pilot out there for that was complete was for Dick Tracy. And he was going to do it in the same style as Batman, because, you know, Batman was all about the villain of the week, right? Right. Villain of the week and the silly and the and the jokes and the campiness. Yeah. Yeah. So basically he said Dick Tracy was going to be very similar. It was going to be very comic booky, but maybe not quite as goofy. But still, you know, they were going to have these different villains coming in that had different quirks. They didn't have the money, they said, to do any prosthetics or really weird makeups and things. Mm-hmm. But they were going to kind of create each character to be a little little quirky in that way. And the only update they were really going to offer for that modern time was a two-way wrist television communicator instead. Wow, that's interesting. This guy's like the Greg Berlanti of, of the 60s. <laughs> And then uh, there's also in the 60s, because that show didn't get picked up, but a cartoon series was produced. And there was uh, 159 minutes, which was 32 short episodes of Dick Tracy. I actually have the DVD of the Dick Tracy show. My wife bought this for me a couple years back. And what's interesting about this show is Dick Tracy does nothing. At the beginning, Dick Tracy is always sitting at his desk. They go, calling Dick Tracy, calling Dick Tracy. He gets the report on the crime, and then he calls one of his agents on the two-way wrist radio. So they were unfortunately very uh, culturally insensitive. Uh, (laughs) Guys like Joe Jitsu and Gogo Gomez. And uh, he had like a a British bulldog, like a literal bulldog in a Bobby uniform who (laughs) Hemlock Holmes. And then he also had just like a regular kind of dim-witted, chubby New York cop who would go out on all the jobs for him. But I just thought that was interesting. It's just like, Dick Tracy's going to do nothing in this show. He's just a figurehead. He's got the, I, the desk job. I, I vaguely want. remember this because I remember the, the calling Dick Tracy thing and he would sit at his desk and it was almost like a – remember Inspector Gadget had a claw always sat in the desk and, and you never saw him in real life. It was kind of the same kind of thing. I feel like I remember this vaguely. Yeah, because well, yeah, so, the show did run when this movie came out. They started running the cartoon again. They like, did. Right, we have a market. Yeah. Right. Um, And then, after all those years, 20 years later, comes this movie by Warren Beatty. And so, that is where we're at. Uh, Let's get into a little bit of what made this movie so special. And I think the very first thing is simply the cast of this movie. This cast, like, oh my god, it was unbelievable. He got everybody in Hollywood to be in this movie, even for 10 seconds. <laughs> I mean, he was a very popular guy in Hollywood, and he had a lot of clout, for sure. Without a doubt. Yeah, and I mean, some of the actors even showed up just to be on the set and just to have fun and were uncredited. Like Al Pacino, who's the main bad guy in this film, you will not see his name in the credits. 
Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, you know, Madonna, obviously happy to be there. Dustin Hoffman, also uncredited. Uh, James Caan, his former, you know, Al Pacino's former co-star in The Godfather. Mandy Which Patinkin. Was, yeah. Uh, J- James Caan's scene in this movie, it was the one of the best in the whole movie. And, you know, uh, yeah, it was just Mandy Patinkin. Yes, that's right. He was in that, too. I saw Inigo him. Montoya. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Dick Van Dyke even has a role yeah. in this, huh? Yeah, I know. I got to tell you, Great. the most surprising member of the cast to me, though, is the guy who plays Numbers, which is James Tolkien. And do you remember him from a very famous series of time travel films? Was he in Back to the Future? Yes. Slacker! <laughs> oh, yeah, he, well, that's right. He was in this movie. I did see him. I was like, oh, I recognize that guy. Yeah, it's Mr. Strickland, but he's like so meek and mild in this movie. You'd never recognize him. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, but that cast is interesting they were a huge deal, but at the time that we were watching this film, really none of them meant anything, I would say, except for Madonna. Would you agree? I would say, for me as a kid growing up, Madonna was definitely the most recognizable face and name. The kid who plays the kid, I'd recognize him from other movies. Mm-hmm. And just because my dad was always a big Godfather fan, I, I knew who Al Pacino was in that voice. But otherwise, I, was, I didn't really resonate back then who was in this. It's, it's one of those things where, as an adult, I think you grow into appreciating it more. But let's talk about that then. When was the first time that you saw this film, Michael? Oh, I saw it in the theaters when it came out. Why do you think you made the, uh, the effort to get to the theaters? What was it that drew you in? Uh... It felt like the closest thing to Batman 89 at the time. And I was like, oh, it's a comic book movie. It's got the same kind of like look and feel as Batman 89. And that kind of gravitated me to it. My mom was a big Madonna fan. So she took me to go see the movie. So that was those are probably the two two main things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's 100% how this was promoted. And I think literally, in most cases, like on news shows and things like that, Entertainment Tonight, you know, it's like the successor to 1989's Batman. Here's you know, 1990's summer blockbuster, Dick Tracy. I mean, that's really, they were riding that wave and everybody was waiting for the next big thing. And I, I too, saw it in theaters, and then I think I rented it once on home video, and then really didn't touch it for years. But it it was such a pivotal film in my childhood, I didn't need to see it a lot. Like, I just remembered almost everything about it. Oh, yeah, Um, me too. Yeah. I, I too, I think I, you know, saw it the one time in the theater, we rented it at our local video store at the time, and I never saw it again until we rewatched it recently. And, uh, yeah, it was one of those that just stuck with me. And I remember, like, the costumes and Al Pacino's voice and, and some of the lines from the movies. Like, you couldn't forget them from Al Pacino in particular. Yeah. And, I mean, I bought the DVD about 10 years ago. And I have a still-sealed copy of the movie on VHS. <laughs> I just came across <laughs> it in an antique store. It's like, it's still the plastic? This is a nice piece. I, I like it. Uh, but, but So I, I watch it like once a year, you know, since I bought the DVD. But I'm curious in your mind, Michael, what then is the legacy of this movie? Because we're going to get into really how big it was and the phenomenon. But when you look back on it, or if you hear it mentioned in, in the pop culture conversation, what do you think it's most known for? 
Uh, that's a good question. If, if you ask me specifically, I would say it's for one line in the whole movie. It's the Al Pacino, I want Dick Tracy dead line. And that, <laughs> and that was the line that always stuck with me growing up. And other than that, like watching it as a filmmaker and, you know, an adult now, just the, the cinematography and the costumes and the art and just the, the prosthetics on all the, the actors was unbelievable. It was like one of those things that it was, I felt that watching it now, it was so far ahead of its time. And I think that's part of where it has, you know, some, has had issues over the past. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, though, that I feel like, whereas Batman 89 is constantly in the conversation, I mean, people talk about that movie, it's a classic, and maybe it's because we get so many Batman films, and then people are like, well, let's go back to 89, oh, it's still great, you know, but to me, I feel like Dick Tracy was huge in its moment, and then kind of forgotten about. I don't, yeah. I don't know that there is a strong legacy to it, except for the merchandising Mm. the promotion of this film is really where it excelled and i think you could not get away from it like for example you and i were reading comic books at the time how many times did you flip a page and find a dick tracy silhouette ad in there back then constantly every single magazine you looked through it was there every newspaper it was there i remember the newspaper spread for the poster for the first time when it was opening that weekend was like a full page spread of the of the the poster i'll never forget that yeah i mean disney went all out on this they were pushing it to the moon and i think it's really interesting because they were following the batman 89 formula for sure because they produced action figures, Playmates, the people who made the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, made Dick Tracy action figures. And at the time, I remember liking them just because the movie was being so hyped, but you also looked at them and they were really like short and stubby. And so you're like, this is kind of weird. You know, <laughs> like it's hard to get excited about them 100%. Yeah, the I remember like the McDonald's merchandise was... I wasn't super over the moon about it. I do remember, like, the Happy Meal box was Dick Tracy-themed. Uh, and they, they had a giveaway. They had a scratch-off card game that you would go in and get these tickets, and then you would, like, scratch it off, and then it would be the face of one of the villains for that mm -hmm. week. That would be, like, if he was the winning villain that week, you could win up to, like, $100,000 or something. Yeah, I wonder if anybody actually ever won those things. <laughs> Uh, but they also had serial tie-ins, like Cap'n Crunch, and they sold these really weird... Well, they were, I guess they weren't sold. Well, there was one thing sold, and then one thing that was included in the box. You know, you had to get your premium. And one of those things, they were very odd, because they called them just a door hanger. So it'd be like, you know, Dick Tracy on it saying, stop, you know, stop right there. You know, it's just kind of like <laughs> the uh, a kid's play version of a uh, do not disturb sign from a hotel but they would have different messages on the inside like there was one who would say like off duty come in or the knob mob inside do not disturb the, the knob mob is uh i want that to be the name of my breakdancing crew you know it's just <laughs> It's awesome, the bad guys. Hold it. No knocking allowed. You know, just like these weird things. Uh, but on the side of the box as well, they had an offer for a wrist radio. And it was an actual 
watch that you would wear with just like a plastic picture of the Dick Tracy logo on it. But you, it also came with headphones you could insert into the side, and then you could literally listen to the radio. You know, it was, it was so, and I, uh, I you had one across this. I did not have one, but I have one now. Oh my god! And it was so cool. I do, I, I yeah. do remember this thing though. I was like, oh man, I, how many UPCs do I need to send away for this thing or something? That's funny. You have one. I'm. That's great. And, and that's the coolest part about it is that this was not anything you had to buy like five boxes to get. It was just five fifty plus seventy five cents shipping and handling. And uh, it's pretty great, though, because on the back of the box, it has Cap'n Crunch. He's like, I know, you'll enjoy your new wrist radio. It's super. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an FM radio, the batteries included. So I have, I have mine now. But also, Playmates, who made the action figures, produced a bunch of Dick Tracy wrist radios as well. There was one set that was literally walkie-talkies attached yes, it was to an armband. <laughs> it, it was walkie-talkies. I remember that, yes. They had them at Toys R Us. It was more like a dress-up playtime one that was a digital watch, and you would just press it, and it would make a noise, like, you know, so you could pretend you were talking into it. I now have one of those as well. Basically, I use this show as an excuse to grab every version of the wrist radio I've, also, I've always wanted. And I actually even picked one, another one up that I'd never heard of. And I don't know if it was just released in Canada, but that's where it came from. <laughs> and it is so cool because it's one that really, it's, it's a watch, but it, it looks like, you know, it doesn't look like a toy. It looks like the one from the movie. And it's really neat. So it was, you know, released by Walt Disney, you know, so it was a, a fully licensed product. But anyway, um, also in all this was a music album by Madonna called I'm mm -hmm. Breathless. <laughs> and so that was like the tie-in album. And it was pretty good, actually. I, I've been listening to it over the last few weeks. And it's got <laughs> a lot of like an old-timey style songs, but there were also three songs written by Stephen Sondheim, who, you're from New York, Michael. You know the Broadway scene. He was huge. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's, a, that's a name that, I mean, if, if you are familiar with Broadway or New York City or Times Square, if you... If you've mentioned that name, somebody's like, oh, yeah, I know that play or musical that he did. Yeah. Oh, it's a big, it's a big name. Yeah. So and Madonna's album is uh, pretty cool. I actually picked up recently a copy uh, from 1990 of TV Guide, and it actually shows in this ad for like the Columbia Record you know, Club, that you see the I'm Breathless album in there. So it was definitely a big album for its time. And also in the mix were trading cards by Tops because you could not have a, an awesome movie in the day and not have trading cards associated with it. Michael, I know we each have a copy. Uh, we're, we're not trying to infringe on uh, Mickey's Waxback flashback episodes, but we just thought we'd take a look here and see what we each got. So I hear Michael opening his. I'll open oh, mine. Yeah. We'll here we go. I was here. dying. <laughs> dying um, to open these. Been holding on to them for a while. Oh yes, look, my number one. I got they they have these wanted poster stickers. I got the blank. Oh, wow, that's exciting. cool. I got a wanted poster of blackmail. That's pretty oh, cool. Interesting. I don't even know which guy is that. Is he he looks, with the pockmarks. 
yeah, his, his like his jawline is kind of. Uh, it says influence blackmail is what it oh, says. Oh, okay. So influence. All right. Yeah, I didn't know that he was that blackmail was his last name, <laughs> or that's his job. Maybe that's what the story M- maybe, is. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite card that you got pulled out? Uh, oh, let's of that see. Pack? All right. Uh, so there's a couple of good ones in your out. Uh, I have the blast from below is pretty good, and there is the hard driving detective and it's kind of like a a film noir looking picture of dick tracy driving his car with like only his eyes are not in shadow that's pretty cool oh yeah i think my two favorites here i got another just the main card of the blank that says here who is this mysterious faceless stranger a crook with a hidden agenda the blank can be a friend as well as a fiendish foe it takes a detective like dick tracy to shed some light on this enigmatic felon and then I got another one calling Dick Tracy where he's talking into the two-way wrist radio. So that's perfect. That's pretty so cool. So excited. Uh, but yeah, so those cards, I mean, they were in my junk drawers at my house growing up for years. I mean, <laughs> I just I only grabbed probably like five packs back in the day, but I've, I've been buying them up at antique stores lately because I see Dick Tracy merchandise everywhere. So that's why I'm saying when you talk about the legacy, I mean, it was just the merchandise has endured because they put out everything. I even have a, a garage sale recently. I got a giant sticker fun book from Golden Books, you know, <laughs> Dick Tracy themed. And I, I do have to mention last thing about the action figures, though. So my friend Brent had all of the Dick Tracy action figures except for the blank. And if anybody out there was collecting these at the time, and there was an article recently up on the Retro Network about Dick Tracy, and one of the things you had to understand was the blank was not available in the United States. So we would hunt for it as kids. That was like the coolest character to have. And you couldn't get it because it was only released in Canada. And these days it goes for hundreds of dollars. I mean, because it was so rare. and. Well- it's actually on eBay right now. The cheapest one is seventeen hundred dollars. Oh man! The, the highest one is two thousand five hundred ninety-nine dollars. Yeah, I mean wow. they are so so rare. And I think the reason was the toy itself. You know, spoiler for anybody who's not seen it. But when you pulled off the mask, Breathless Mahoney, played by Madonna, was underneath. Really? I think they didn't want to ruin the surprise. Uh, I have another detail about that later on, uh, about what was involved in keeping that a secret from the public. But, Michael, I also have a question for you. You're a big Batman fan. Do you recall another action figure that they were not so careful with that revealed a secret about the Batman universe? Um... I will tell you, it was based on the movie Batman Mask of the Phantasm, the animated series movie oh, that came out. Oh, when when the Phantasm, they had the mask that had you pulled it off and it was the woman's head underneath it, right? But it was packaged with the mask next to her. So she was no. in the Phantasm costume and you saw her head. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a mystery. It was on toy shelves. So it was given away <laughs> in the toy aisle. So... Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, that, and that was years after this, but I just thought it was funny. It was a very similar style of film and everything and a mystery they wanted to keep. And yet, there you go. 
Okay, so uh, this is the other question that I have for you as far as, uh, you know, cultural impact of the film in any way. Do you ever see it referenced, Michael? Have you ever come across Dick Tracy merchandise or do you ever in conversation, do people ever bring it up to you when you're talking about favorite movies from childhood? Well, truthfully, no. It doesn't really come up very often in like casual conversation with my film buddies but it's one of those movies that you know we just had the oscars this past weekend and all the award shows whenever they do like montages and flashbacks to movies they always have little excerpts of this movie that appear in the in the footage oh really i did not even notice that that's pretty cool it always (laughs) pops up well, and again, Warren Beatty, obviously, too, was part of a very famous Oscar flub just a few years back. <laughs> Not mm-hmm. his fault, but he was up there during the whole uh, La La Land. What was the one that actually won? See, everybody's oh, already forgotten it. Something Moon. Was it? Um, moonlight. No? Moonlight, yeah, it was yeah. Moonlight, yeah. <laughs> but see, everybody remembers the scandal, not the winner of the award. No. Uh, um, here's the only thing I can say, because like we mentioned before, it is a film that is sadly forgotten, but to me, it was using old Hollywood special effects techniques to their utmost at the time, but all of those special effects are outdated by mm-hmm. today's standards. Oh, for sure. And so I think if it's one of those things, if you look back at it, you could say, wow, there was, you know, the pinnacle of the... And it's weird, too, for me also to think of it as an 80s film, but it is. I mean, it, it was, you got to think, it was in, it was basically being filmed in 88 and being developed in post-production in 89 to get ready for the summer of 1990. So, I mean, it's a full 80s film, even though it came out in 1990. Same with Batman 89. When I think about that, I'm like, really, that's an 80s movie? But yeah. to me, it's almost timeless. And I think it has a lot to do with the setting, right? Mm-hmm. These 1930s-style metropolis-type towns that they create for this. But if I was going to say cultural impact, the only thing I could suggest is that it maybe kicked off this slew of adventure films that seem to be set in the 30s with gangsters, with all those things going on, right? And I was going to say that. Yeah, it was yeah. like... You know, after this movie, you had The Phantom, you had The Shadow, you had, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of other movies Even that followed. Even the Flash TV series that we're going to be back talking about uh, in a little while here. Uh, yeah. That was very much set in modern times and yet not modern times. You know, like it looked like it was the 30s. Yeah, they blended a little bit of both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it, it probably there was just something in the zeitgeist at that time for filmmakers. They wanted to present that look for whatever reason. But um, let's get back to the idea here um, of who really was involved in this film. I mentioned this because Warren Beatty, for him to make this movie, <laughs> for him to make Dick Tracy, a film that was based on a comic strip. I mean, he said the reason he did it was because he was a fan growing up of Dick Tracy and he had the influence. Now he could do it. But just to, so you understand how big a deal Warren Beatty was. So, Bonnie and Clyde was the first of six films Beatty had produced. It served notice to the Hollywood community that he had the foresight to nurture a film from the scripted page to the Oscar ceremonies. He has since been nominated for 11 Academy Awards. 
Best Actor and Best Picture. And this is just as of 1990. I'm reading this from the making of the movie, mm-hmm. a Dick Tracy book. So, Best Actor and Best Picture, Bonnie and Clyde. Best Screenplay for Shampoo. Actor, Picture, Screenplay, Director for Heaven Can Wait. Actor, mm. Picture, Screenplay, Director for Reds. And he won the Oscar for directing Reds. And says, uh, the man asks questions, and the man gets some pretty satisfactory answers. <laughs> hmm. So, and this is a film that he had in development for like 10 years. And if nothing else, that is what I got from all my behind-the-scenes reading, is that Warren Beatty is this meticulous, very intelligent filmmaker, but he's relentless in getting a team of people together to work with them that are very skilled and then just picking all their choices apart over and over and over again until he's satisfied. Like, yes, this is the right costume. Yes, this is the right color. Yes, this is the right lens we should use on the film. Like, just everything. And he is just super, super involved in every element of this, just like, you know, he's not just starring in this, right? He produced it. He directed it. He's, you know, very involved in the script itself and developing that even up until the character designs. So, I mean, he was getting in there when they were making the blank mask. And they were trying really? to out, what, what's the blank going to look like? He was like, no, it's still not right. And he got in there and he's pushing the clay, they said, with his thumbs. He's given mm. shape and contours and he's got, I mean, so he's like that far into it. So I, I just bring that up so that you understand at this time, I mean, Warren Beatty was revered and very respected, and this was his choice for a film. But I think also it's worth mentioning, Michael, the year that this was released, right? Uh, can you think of any other big movies from 1990? Well, in my similar in theme, yeah. Oh, similar themed? Yeah. Or... Well, go ahead. If you, have, if you have other details, throw them out there, but... So, so in my stat research, I found out that in the month of June of 1990, when this movie came out, which was June 15th, you had June 1st was Total Recall, mm-hmm. June 7th, which is my birthday, just so you know, uh, was Lionheart with, with Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> uh, Buster. Then you had uh, on June 15th, the same day as this movie, was Gremlins 2, A New Batch. Yeah. June 22nd was RoboCop 2. And June 27th was Days of Thunder. So this was a bad month for this movie because, and I feel, because there were so many other big movies with huge stars in it and, and like, a lot of sequels and such that would really connect with the audience. And this probably would have been better off if maybe it came out in May or July of that year when it might have had less competition for money in box office. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it still was a huge movie. And yet, again, we talked about that aesthetic being in the zeitgeist, but mob and gangster movies were huge in this year as well. Because in 1990, you had Goodfellas, mm-hmm. Godfather Part 3, The Freshman, you know, so that was you know sort of a comedy, but it was mob-based, and mm-hmm. Darkman, where he's fighting the mob, right? That's uh, right. Darkman came out this year. I thought it came out after this. I didn't no. realize that. Yeah, oh, wow. Same year. And so it's one of those things where, like, there was just something about it. Now, the other thing that I always assumed, you know, that, again, 
coming the year after Batman being so associated with that blockbuster. But uh, oh, I thought I, it was it... like influenced by the movie, but it's not. I mean, it was in development so far before it. There are quite a few similarities in the film. There, there. For example, I mean, in Tim Burton's Batman, you know, both of the films feature the hero crashing through a glass skylight, you know, shot from below. Mm-hmm. Both end with the villain falling to his death. Both have a scene where the main villain is holding a meeting around a table with mobsters to get them to accept him as the new big boss. Mm-hmm. And both have Danny Elfman scores. <laughs> and actually, yeah. Warren Beatty said he was cautious about choosing Danny Elfman because he didn't want to be associated with Batman so directly. But he just said Danny Elfman was right for their movie, so he picked him. And the last thing I mentioned before, but they both had separate soundtracks released by pop music stars. So Batman had the Prince Batman album, and Madonna had her I'm Breathless album. Mm-hmm. That's so, true. I mean, again, That's even though they they claim they weren't influenced by it, they're again they just followed so similar a pattern. It's hard to believe. Yeah. Also, I, another gangster movie that came out that year is a very very good one. If you've never seen it, you should see this movie. Is Miller's Crossing, which came out in October. So there was a lot of gangster movies that year. Oh yeah, I saw that listed. I just didn't know what it was about. <laughs> oh yeah, it, it's it's a gangster movie, but it's like the Irish mob as opposed to like you know Godfather okay. and the Italian mob. It's a really really good movie. So, but let's hear about it then. So when it did hit theaters in June, Michael, you're saying you feel like it was not the right timing. But how much money did this movie actually make? So its budget was forty six million, and total box office between the U.S. and Canada was 162.7 million opening weekend was 22,543,911 so in the US it made like 102 million and then in Canada it made about 59 million and and that's the the markets for which they really measured it for this movie but, I mean, that's still huge money for 1990. I mean, today, that's nothing. <laughs> it's, it's a complete failure if, if, some, if a movie made that much. But back then, I mean, that was big deal. It was big deal, but I feel like, you know, with this particular movie, especially being that it made about 103, as I'm looking at here, in the U.S., which is, so its budget was $46 million. you got to figure all of the marketing and the merchandise and all that stuff had to be at least another 40 to 50 million even at that time hmm. so so they probably broke even in the US and then whatever they paid for Canada and so on and so forth for that marketing it probably i'd say long term scale probably broke about even between the you know the market they probably were hoping this thing was going to make like batman money which made I forget what it was, 300 or 400 million or something like that mm. in the U.S. alone. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely didn't stack up. You know, it's interesting, though. I have the an issue of Comic Scene Magazine here, which is the Dick Tracy issue, and they were reporting the price tag to be $23 million. They're saying, well, it's safe to say that most of Dick Tracy's $23 million price tag will be eaten up by production costs. A certain amount of that budget will be consumed by a first-rate cast. So... Yeah, I mean, obviously, there was a lot of uh, money flying around to the people they had to pay to be in the movie as well, although it sounded like a lot of them were doing favors. But yeah, I mean, this is the other question, though. So, you know, box office aside, 
how was it received overall? Uh, it, it rather critically or whether it was uh, by the public. So uh, Roger Ebert gave it four stars in his review, arguing that, from what I found that Warren Beatty succeeded in creating the perfect tone of nostalgia for the film. And uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score to this day, give it a, a 63 audience scores, give it about a, a 53 those are the numbers that I found, but yeah, Roger Ebert said it was great. A lot of the reviews from critics at the time also all really liked it, and they said, you know, mainly playing off the nostalgia of, of you know, the 30s and 40s, for which the movie is kind of feels like it's set. I almost feel like it's more even close to the 50s in in a sense, in, in its time period. But well, one thing I'll mention about that too is you know, so Gene Siskel he actually criticized it. So I, I watched the TV show. Did you, did you really yeah. so so they, it's on youtube you can watch the siskel and ebert review of dick tracy and basically yeah roger ebert was all over it he loved it he loved it and gene siskel's like well it's great you know production wise i just wish there could have been more of a a story that like he, he just felt like everybody around it was awesome but dick tracy himself was not he i felt did. that way yeah that's how i felt too like I felt like Warren Beatty's portrayal of Dick Tracy was kind of flat throughout the whole movie, whereas Al Pacino's given it 150 percent. You know, I felt this was Madonna's best role she's ever done. Uh, she was really incredible in it. Even the kid was great. The the girlfriend, the what's her name? I forget what her name Tess is. Tess Trueheart. Yeah. Yeah, she she was great in it too. Even the the cameo of, of James Caan was was awesome, and Dustin Hoffman's mumbles was wild. But I felt Dick Tracy himself felt flat, and I almost wondered it was because, like you said, Warren Beatty was so involved with so much of the movie that when he actually played the character, that kind of fell to the wayside because he's directing, he's producing, he's picking out all the costumes and the makeup, and I feel like he just didn't didn't do well as dick tracy he almost phoned it in i feel like yeah well and i also feel it may have just been a choice because you know you think of dick tracy he's just kind of hard-nosed straight-laced he's the guy who's going to get stuff done and i don't know that he was looking to make this a really deep character piece you know to me it, it's not a film that feels like it uh, is delving deep into in the psychology of any of the characters too much. I mean, I would say that the female characters are definitely given the most to work with emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like, like there's there's a lot more going on there. But yeah, so it's it's an interesting situation where you know the hero of the story certainly is outshined by everybody else. But also, you know, uh, when award season, we mentioned the Oscars just recently coming by. And so Dick Tracy was actually up for some great awards, although I find it interesting in one of the cases, because if this is to be believed, uh, so they won or sorry, they won for best production design. They won for best makeup and hairstyling. And then they were nominated for best cinematography of Vittorio Storaro. And then Al Pacino was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, even though he didn't take credit for the film. <laughs> I saw that, too. I, and I I feel like I knew that, because when I looked at it, I'm like, oh, yeah, he was nominated for this movie, wasn't he? And I, and I 
then when you mentioned that he has no credit in the film, I found that I'm like that's weird. I'm like, I wonder how he could get nominated for it, but he's not credited on the movie, which is interesting. Yeah, but I gotta say, so speaking of the production design, this film is amazing in that regard. I mean, their whole goal was to create this total otherworldly situation that was maybe set and reminiscent of the 30s, but also just out of time and unto itself. And obviously what they did was they focused in a very specific way on the colors. Oh, the right? colors were beautiful. And and I could understand why the movie was nominated for Best Cinematography, because the camera work in this movie for a film shot in the late 80s was incredible. Just like the playing with color, the balances of dark and light, dealing with all those different color zoot suits, I guess you would call them, yeah. and, and you know the pastels in the sky, and, and part of the city is almost you know model, and part of it is painted in the background. It was really unbelievable. I'm like, this movie was so far ahead of its time, cinematography-wise alone, that it was just amazing in that sense. I mean, and the cinematographer has said uh, here in the, the Making of book, he says, when I faced Dick Tracy, I was trying to investigate the symbolism, the physiology, the meaning of each color. Yellow became the first spoke of, of a spinning color wheel that set off a shower of creative sparks. But, I mean, literally, they worked on this film for so long. They were breaking everything down. So, I mean, he goes through everything here. He's like, gradually, other characters were keyed into the picture. On the sunny side of the street, the kid watched it all happen with an emotional blush of red. Mix his rosy color with Tracy's yellow, and you find yourself basking in the warm orange of Tess Trueheart. I mean, like, they thought of it that deeply. And they go through everything. The green for evil and blue that they would, you know, know bathe the the bad guys in blue light or you know all these different things and obviously a lot of black in the film and dark uh, colors to to create that mood and all of that um but i had one question for you michael because you are you know you've gone to film school you're in that industry did those scenes where the camera was framed in such a way where there's a character in the foreground up close you know and then you have a bunch of characters behind that are there's like action going on sometimes it would be like a martini glass or it would be madonna's head you know crying or tracy just kind of in silhouette but then there was stuff going on behind him that is there a specific name for that is that a specific style of filmmaking so uh, it, it's it's a couple of different things a lot of it is very much in a style of film noir which is a heavy contrast of darks and lights and shadows and pulling in and out of focus. Uh, film noir is is notoriously for detective stories in the 1930s and 40s that were in black and white. And this is like a color, campier, like more goofy version of a film noir detective story, which is which is basically what it is. And that's how they shot it. In particular, the scene toward the end of the movie where they're in the, the clock tower with all the gears, the way the light comes in through the shadows and so on and so forth, it's very film noir. And just the way they shoot Dick Tracy, he has this, you know, stoic detective, almost like a, you know, 
James Cagney kind of a thing or uh, Jimmy Stewart or, or uh, Cary Grant when they were doing the, you know black and white films and, and the film noir style detective stories. And, and that was clearly how they were shooting this movie as if it was a film in color that was meant to be a black and white film noir. Okay, yeah, and that makes sense. And actually, speaking of black and white, I don't know if you noticed this, but when the Touchstone Pictures logo comes up at the beginning, it's in black and white. It is black and white. I noticed that. I noticed and then everything else is like, you know, bright, bright colors. I just yeah. thought that was a really interesting choice. <laughs> um, but so just to mention here, the other award, you know, that they won was Best Makeup and Hairstyling. And the makeup effects uh, were done by two guys called Caglione and Drexler. Um, and they were pretty involved in this, but they were just like longtime makeup fans from the time they were kids. You know, they would read all the monster magazines and stuff, and they learned how to make masks. And then eventually they were in touch with a, a famous Hollywood uh, makeup artist named Dick Smith. And he basically kind of mentored them, just like Chester Gould was mentoring his replacement. And so they were really working hard to create something interesting for the film. And what I thought was awesome is that uh, they said Warren Beatty basically had the you know the main characters he was going to use, people like Flat Top and Influence and Big Boy. You know, so you you got to sort that out. But then he said for the rest just pick from the characters you find most interesting that you want to create and we're just going to mix them in in the background you know they'll have their different scenes because you know like the opening scene there's like probably the most recognizable characters at least in, in terms of like wow they look weird you know you got mm -hmm. little face you know and you got the rodent and you got you know all these characters and then they get blown away like <laughs> within the first few minutes within the first five minutes of the movie you're like oh well those guys are gone okay <laughs> yeah and so it's then steve the tramp you know who is take uh not i'm gonna say taking care of the kid but he's essentially uh, looking after the kid on some level and he gets beaten up and then he's gone and yet all these characters the brow like all of them had action figures and they were in the trading cards and they were prominently featured in all the merchandising but they're barely in the movie so uh, i, I have a, yeah. i have a theory behind that right yes so i think that this movie at the time got butchered in the editing room and they had to cut out a lot of stuff and there's a lot of plot holes in the movie that you don't notice very often, but you can pick up on if you pay close enough attention. Like, for example, you just mentioned that first scene where all those bad guys get killed. The kid is in the room and he sees it, but it's never mentioned in the rest of the movie that the kid was an eyewitness to all of this stuff. It just goes away. And I was that like... Is, yeah. I was like, that's weird. Why, why, why would the kid not tell them that he saw this happen? He's with the hero in the movie, but it goes away and is forgotten about. Yeah, I mean, there, there are some things in there. Now, according to the behind the scenes, Warren Beatty was very, very... He basically would have people do the scenes over and over again, the rewrites that took place on the script over and over again. And so there wasn't anything on the cutting room floor is what they say. Like, that they pretty much used everything. There weren't reshoots, there weren't any of those things. I actually 
consulted. There is a Twitter uh, account if you guys are interested in Dick Tracy and want to get back into your fandom. Um, it's just called at Dick Tracy Movie, and they're always posting awesome details behind the scenes trivia over there. And so I asked about a particular scene that I'll bring up a little bit later in the show, and that was the response I got. They're like, no, I mean, there weren't reshoots. They didn't leave stuff out. But it's very possible that just the script itself was pared down to a point where they're just like action 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 you know and and maybe less time explaining those little details so i think we're we're going to get into more of that shortly here but i think it's time for us to really discuss the film in more depth by talking about our favorite moments and providing some awards for dick tracy that we're going to give them (laughs) 30 years later so the first one we want to discuss is our favorite scene in the movie now you already mentioned one for you so what is your nominee michael so my favorite scene is the al pacino i want dick tracy dead scene his the whole monologue of him talking and and it was like full pacino all the way it was it was he was so into it in particular in that scene that it was like it sold it for me the other scene that's a close second for me is the scene when breathless comes to dick tracy's apartment and they have that like intimate moment because there's so much to those two in that story that we kind of don't get the full fulfillment of and i wanted to see more of it and that was a great scene too but i think the for me it's the i want dick tracy dead al pacino scene by far okay and uh the others that i would nominate in this category we just spoke about it but flat top breaking in on the card game at the beginning of the film and assassinating all the rival gangsters i mean and then taking his tommy gun to write a message on the concrete wall for dick tracy eat lead tracy like there's just so much going on in that scene that i feel like encapsulates the entire movie it's just like if you were gonna just try to explain what's this movie about that could have been the trailer almost you know? it could have been yeah and then also for me just my favorite big boy moment you know watching al pacino as big boy uh, is him choreographing the dance number for more oh, you know? that and he's was like, so he's hilarious rehearsal he's like ah i want to touch it i want to grab it give it to me ah you know he's just like trying to give them all he's keeps slapping madonna's you know belly whatever he's doing you know to get her to shape up he just he's got to be in control even though he has nothing to do with it you could tell he knows nothing about show business (laughs) so so it was funny so this movie came out in 1990 and i also feel like a lot of this movie was copied again by tim burton in batman returns a lot of the behavior that al pacino does especially in that particular scene is very similar to how danny devito plays the penguin you're right and that was really interesting madonna's hair and look in this movie is almost completely identical to michelle pfeiffer's hair and look after she becomes catwoman it was so weird. I'm like, wow, they look so similar. It was crazy. And I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. Definitely there. I could see that. I never even thought about, you know, Big Boy and the Penguin, but you're right. They're definitely on the same level in so many ways. 
Um, and my last nominee that I wanted to provide was just because it introduced me to the concept of, you know, getting the bath, but that's after they get lips manless and they take him from the club Ritz over to the warehouse, you know, big boy's like, you look dirty lips. You need a bath. No, not the bath, big boy, not the bath, you know, and he's like covering him and they're dumping the cement on him inside the box and all that. Tracy breaks in and he sets up a dummy, so they shoot the dummy instead. That was the one moment, too, or we'll get into it a little bit later, but there was something in that scene where I'm just like, wait a minute, I don't understand why this is happening. So. Yeah, it was it's a little confusing, but it's a, it's a yeah. good scene. The last fun scene that I really liked was the, you know, gangsters around the table, James Kahn leaves, and I'm like, they're going to blow up James Kahn, aren't they? <laughs> And he gets in the car, and the car blows up. And I was like, they just basically say, okay, he's here. We don't need him. Blow him up. And it's like, wow, they really went for it there. I thought that was pretty funny and pretty cool. So yeah. that was my little honorable mention. Yeah, but I, I think, uh, you know, for if we're going to vote on this, I think you're right that because – Al Pacino is such a big presence in the film that, you know, I want Dick Tracy dead. He's like, I need generals. What do I got? Foot soldiers. You know, he's just like, <laughs> he's ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. And so, yeah, I think that's definitely probably the, the favorite scene, best scene to offer <laughs> to yeah. give people an idea. I All agree. Right. And next up, we're going to be talking about the favorite quote or line in the movie. So again, that might uh, dovetail from where we just were into this. Uh, did you have any particular lines that stood out to you, Michael, as you were listening to the film so intently? So, so yeah, um, there's another line. It's it's a Madonna line. This is she's talking to Dick Tracy, and I'm going to paraphrase it, and I'm going to screw it up. But it was either like, "You're going to frisk me, copper," or "You're going to arrest me, copper," something like that. And it was. Just the way she delivered it and, like, she was coming out of shadows and it was really cool and beautiful kind of moment. And I really like that line as a, as a close second type of moment. Yeah, I think the line is, you know, it's legal for me to take you down to the station and sweat it out of you under the lights. I sweat a lot better in the dark. You know, that yeah, later on she's like, aren't you going to frisk me? Yeah, <laughs> that, that whole scene was a great scene, too. Uh, I think uh, for me, there's a very simple one, but it's part of a great montage. That's just the kid. When do we eat? <laughs> yes. When do we eat? When do we eat? <laughs> just going back and forth, back and forth. He's always in a diner. They're, they're in the car, they're wherever they end up. And he's just asking, when do we eat? Uh, and just so you know, Charlie Corsmo, who plays uh, the kid, later Dick Tracy Jr., uh, you know, and you were saying you remembered him from another movie, Hook. Yes, you know, he was in Hook. most prominently. Uh, but he was hired for Dick Tracy because Warren Beatty just said, this kid is so intelligent. And the thing he keeps mentioning is, like, he actually had already, he, you know, he was only, like, 11 or something when he was in the movie, but he had already finished up all his high school requirements for mathematics. So he wasn't wow. going to have to do any math in high school. Like, he was just kind of this genius kid. He's wow. like, ah, oh, I just respected that. I needed him in my movie. Hmm. Interesting. Um, did you have another one? Uh, favorite lines? Uh, I want Dick Tracy dead. <laughs> so there's a line toward the end of the movie where Dustin Hoffman, they, he, he stops mumbling for a second. I forget what he says, 
but the way that he turns off the mumble and speaks normally for a second, I was like, wow, that is some acting right there to be able to, to switch off like that. I don't remember what he says, but it's just the way he delivered the line. I was like, that's pretty amazing that he did that. Yeah, definitely. And I'm I'm going to nominate that for something else coming up. So <laughs> you won't get my vote on that one because I think oh, it that's cool. better for something else. But um, uh, the other one I wanted to bring up is there's also another big boy speech it basically you know james khan's character spaldoni is asking he's like why you basically saying like why are you going to be the head of it he's talking about i got vision i got all this he's like one napoleon one washington one me (laughs) (laughs) so i just i love that big boy just he's putting himself up in that great pantheon of historic figures um, and then if we're going to go with another breathless line, the big boy comes to her and he's like, around me, if a woman don't wear mink, she don't wear nothing. Well, I look good both ways. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much, so much going on with breathless dialogue in this film. There is. Um, but yeah, what do you think you would vote for then, Michael? I do like the Napoleon one. That was pretty funny when he said that. When you said it, I was like, oh yeah, that was pretty hilarious that he compared himself to Napoleon in Washington. That was pretty good. And the truth is, I was going to nominate some other big boy lines because he's got a running gag where he is falsely quoting all these you know, famous oh, figures from history, and he's just like, all's fair in love and business. Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin Franklin did not say that, big boy. <laughs> you know? But the, the, he just has a whole run of those that he throws out whenever he's trying to make his point that he's smarter than everybody else, you know? Oh. So yeah, well, that's good. And then, um, let's go ahead now, last one here, as far as the basic award, but who stole the show in a minor role? Well, 100% Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, Mumbles, he is like the breakout star, but I, I think there are some honorable mentions. Um, <laughs> flat, flat Top is, is really, really good, too. I think. Well, see, and, and, but see, I almost figure him not to be a minor role. Like, I know he's a supporting character, but he's like the head of the henchmen, you know? He he's is, like, but he doesn't really say much in the movie, you know? He says he's, he's probably going to be like five lines in the whole film. Uh, hey Tracy, see you around, huh? Mm-hmm. You know, like, but there's so much menace in those lines. Like, yeah, he's pretty great. Um, but I feel like Kathy Bates, who blink and you'll miss her, but she plays the stenographer when they're trying to get Mumble's statement. Yes, <laughs> and she just and she's just like frozen. She's like, I can't write anything. What do you want me to do? You know, she, all she gives is a look. She has no lines, but she is fantastic in that. And I just I love that scene. That scene does make me thirsty when Tracy fills up that glass all the way to the top to where it's basically overflowing, and he's like taking a sip in front of Mumbles. He's under the light. You you know, and I also love the, I, you know, it's not something that ever connected with me as a kid, but the polar bear water jug yeah. that, ha- that has the spigot, like it's like he's peeing the water out. Like it's just, it's really a weird placement. I'm sure that was on purpose. Oh, but. for sure. Uh, another couple of honorable mentions were the Irish cop, the guy with the Irish accent. Mm-hmm. He's just very funny. I don't know what it was. Like just the way he delivered his lines, it was very much like um, like Chief O'Hara from the '60s Batman show, and I, that <laughs> kind of made me laugh. Yeah, 
Um, and then uh, I think the reason that, you know, like you said, the reason Mumbles is such a, a great character, why he steals the show is he literally is like just in the background in a lot of scenes. In he's almost like, every he's shining yeah. big boy shoes or he's peeking in on a meeting or like he's not given the spotlight so he's almost like inserting himself in the movie and then yeah when he gets interrogated and you know he's doing everything here you know so finally tracy figures out you know he slows down the tape that's how we know what you said you told us big boy did it but then bubbles is like I'm gonna, I'm gonna. 88 keys the piano man set you up big boy paid him to get you out of the way <laughs> you know, it's just like a, just a straight Dustin Hoffman line reading, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it was so. amazing how he did that. I was just like, wow, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, so Mumbles, you win. Congratulations. Um, but then who was overall the MVP of the movie for you? Al Pacino, by far. He's uh. he's given it 150% in this movie. He, he put his all into this film. Like, he really sold it. It was just... A, a great acting job by him yeah now what they said was the reason he took the role is that they were going to allow him to create the character however he wanted hmm. so big boy in the comics looks nothing like al pacino does in this movie big boy is just like a tall kind of balding sort of big bellied guy but he, he just wears a suit and he's just kind of a fancy dan type of hmm. <laughs> character and he's not like this grotesque gargoyle the al pacino came into the makeup trailer and he would like try on a nose he would try on a chin he would like do all these different things and then he's like yep i like this i like this let's go with this and then they said that when he would get into the makeup trailer he would put the makeup on and he would fall asleep, you know, because a, a couple hours to put it on. And he would fall asleep. And then when he would wake up, he was Big Boy. Uh. They were saying it was just like he, like Al disappeared in the dream and Big Boy woke up. And then he would just be in character for the whole day while he was shooting the film. And he just loved it. And he was always coming up with new lines and improvising and just having a great time. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. So I think that does, you know, lead to a great performance a lot of times. If you have a very talented actor and you kind of give them free reign, they can come up with some very cool stuff. And that wasn't common, you know, back in the day. It's more common now, I feel like, with comedies, at least. Yeah. Uh, but for a movie of this scale to, you know, allow the actor to just go off book and do their thing, that's pretty great. Um so, that being the case then, we talked about this cast being full of heavy hitters. So let's discuss the major actors in the movie. Let's talk about some of their other films. Just saying, for example, is this Madonna's best role in reality? You said that, Michael. Do you really think that's the case? I think so. I really think that she was incredible in this role. I really think she really sold it for me. She's probably the most interesting character in the whole movie. And I really, really liked her in comparison to a lot of her other films. I think she's really... This was her best role. Yeah, I mean, definitely emotionally, she is the one who has a lot of levels. There's a lot going on behind the eyes. But here's what she says about playing the role and how that performance came out of her. 
they ask, uh, describe the relationship between Breathless and Big Boy. I had nothing but contempt for Big Boy, and he would treat me like a bad little girl. He was always slapping me and spanking me. And in terms of being on the set, whenever Al put his prosthetics on his suit, he was a gross pig. And he's not that way in real life. He's very gracious and well-mannered and gentlemanly and sweet. As Big Boy, he would tell me the dirtiest jokes and suck on his cigar like it was some sort of weird phallic symbol and just be a pig. He was always smacking my butt in my face. I hated him. I loathed him. I was disgusted with him. And so what happened off camera was that I'd always try to be moving away from him and he'd always grab me and go, get over here, which is exactly what happened in the movie. Every time I expressed my distaste for him, he would smack me, which is also what happened in the movie. I got mad. He made me cry sometimes. There was a scene where he kept smacking me in the stomach and it would sting. And what made me cry was not so much the hip, but the fact that Warren wouldn't stop. He would just keep going and I was humiliated. So it worked because that's what was happening to Breathless. She's totally humiliated by Big Boy. Hmm. So she was kind of uh, (laughs) forced into some of those reactions. Uh, but still, in her quieter performances, I would say, with Tracy, she's also very good. Yeah. But I have to contend with you, Michael, because I think the best Madonna performance is A League of Their Own. She's so great as, I think, All the Way May is her character in that movie. <laughs> she is great in that role, too. She and is she's really She's just so free and perfect at that. Because you know, I've seen, like, Desperately Seeking Susan. She's not great in that movie. No. I've seen some of her other work uh, that will go unnamed. Uh, <laughs> and uh, But yeah, I don't think she's ever been great between those two films. I think that is her best work. Now, you know, Evita, I don't know if that counts, you mm-hmm. know, because there's a musical and all that. So, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think this is a strong contender. But if it, I was going to, you know, give her an award, you know, uh, posthumously, you know, here you go. <laughs> she started Dick Tracy. No, she was starred in a league of their own. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Um, now, this is a question, though. Was this Warren Beatty's best film? No. I mean, that's a debate, right? <laughs> no, I, I would say probably Bonnie and Clyde is his best film. Yeah, I think that's what he's going to be best known for, right? You know, yeah. That's his legacy, even though, you know, I know there's a lot of fans in the 90s of films like Bullworth or, you know, just like, which is kind of a random film, but that was a big deal at the time. Mm. Um, and then, you know, there's the one he won the Academy Award for, which is Reds, but that was more like, that was kind of like a political mm-hmm. documentary anti-war type film. So I think of its time, it was a big deal, but I don't know if that's a film that endures. I don't think anybody remembers that movie if, exactly. unless you're really in the film world. That's why I, you know, I mean, like Bonnie and Clyde is something that you see imagery of all the time, and it's referenced mm-hmm. in in you know every top 100 films of all time. That's always in there. Yeah, and was this Al Pacino's most critically acclaimed role? No, I wouldn't say so, but it's yeah. he, he's definitely entertaining in it for sure. Yeah, not by a long shot, but uh, to me, this is like the Mad Magazine version of The Godfather, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so he's he's just letting it all go. He's like, this is I couldn't go this big, you know, with Francis, but you know, Warren's gonna let me go big, so I'll do it. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know if there's anybody else you want to call out to compare. I think the, again, this is really this is not anybody's best movie. But there's some great stuff going on, and it's very entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, the question then becomes, too, you know, what if there were other people 
that had been cast or for example like actually gene hackman and faye dunaway who were in bonnie and clyde with warren Beatty, they were contacted like he said do you want to be in the film but they just they had scheduling conflicts from what i understand it had nothing <laughs> to do with them not wanting to be a part of it so interesting um, yeah but it's there are there are characters in this for example that you know are behind makeup so you feel like well anybody could have been that character but i don't know if that's true i mean you you have to be able to act through the makeup and even um warren Beatty had the decision to make right because he said the reason that you have so many of these grotesque characters in makeup and then you don't have that makeup on, you know, Tess Trueheart or the kid or, you know, uh, Madonna's Breathless Mahoney. The reason being is that he felt it was the contrast, right? So the people that you needed to be emotionally involved in, you couldn't have under that much makeup. But you wanted still to create the world, you know, so you had to have some people that looked like they stepped out of the comic itself. Mm-hmm. And so he even said that he considered doing, because uh, in the comic strip, Dick Tracy has a very iconic kind of a hooked nose and, uh, and a big chin. And so he tried it out, but then he just ultimately said it's going to be too much of a distraction for this story it's not going to have the desired effect it's like yes people would recognize me more as dick tracy but then they're gonna be like huh yeah (laughs) i I think that was the right move yeah um but so this is a question i have for you though michael who do you think if warren Beatty was just gonna direct and produce this movie who could have stood in as harris or as uh, dick tracy well you were Leading towards <laughs> I just, Harrison I just let Ford. it out of the bag, yeah. I think that would have been a good one. I also think at the time, he might have been a little bit older, but even like a Clint Eastwood might have been interesting in that role, too. Ooh, you're right, actually. A Clint Eastwood feels like he would have been the natural choice, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, and he would have played it grizzled. He would have played it a little more tough. Because, you know, Warren Beatty is kind of soft in this movie. I mean, mm-hmm. he's got a serious stone face for a lot of it but at the same time he's not a a hard-hitting type of character he's very one-dimensional in this movie where i feel like a clint eastwood would add some sort of more realism to it and nuance and really sell it more yeah and what i feel like is that they would have approached harrison ford he would have been like ah you know he had just done indiana jones and the last crusade and i think he did not you know you know in star wars he didn't want to be part of franchises yeah and at the time they were you know thinking oh we're definitely gonna have a sequel to this film and so i think he would have been not up for that but you know who i also would have put in the running i don't know that he would have been right for the role but i feel like he Harrison Ford already stole a job from this guy. Let's get Tom Selleck in there as Dick Tracy. Come on. <laughs> Shave the mustache, be Dick Tracy. He's got the chin for it. He could do it. Good, good luck know. getting him to shave that mustache back then. <laughs> <laughs> Had to wait till the Friends days. Yeah. But yeah, you know who was hard for me to think of recasting, though, was Breathless. I was like, who of that period besides Madonna had that kind of... I don't know, like that sex appeal, you know, that could have really 
because she was like notorious you know like it was just she was one of a kind and yet i was trying to think like was there a you know a poor man's madonna during that period that you could have turned to and said hmm is it going to be a pop star or is it debbie gibson actress (laughs) debbie gibson (laughs) that little too young that would have been a little awkward um you know who actually thought of though was stevie nicks stevie nicks come on what are you doing here um uh sean young Oh, so, so Sean Young from Blade Runner already had kind of played in that late 30s, 40s look as Rachel. And I feel like she has that emotionality, but it's like kept under the surface, which is what Madonna was doing a lot of it. You know, like she would just like let a single tear fall, you know, and I feel like Sean Young before she became kind of notorious herself for other reasons. At that time, she was still a working actress that had a lot going for her i feel like she could have brought a different you know a different spin but still just as effective uh character you know into the mix she would have been cool because she had that kind of like dark and mysterious about her similar to the way madonna played it which would have been kind of interesting uh she's definitely a good casting but she does go off the rails when she wanted to become catwoman and after that she kind of <laughs> fell off you know uh, for a it while rough. it was rough yeah but she was great as uh, Einhorn in oh, East Pet Detective. Fantastic. <laughs> Who, yeah, she also refers to Ace as Pet Dick. <laughs> so there's, she already had the line in her mouth. She was ready to talk to Dick Tracy. Um, now, uh, another big boy, what do you think, Michael? Who could have given an Al Pacino-level performance or one that was just as memorable but maybe in a different way? Well, not that it would have happened, but jack nicholson <laughs> oh man that would have been terrible it would have been only terrible. because like it's just like the joker and now he's big boy people are gonna be like well, this guy's never gonna get out of brightly colored suits no i just think I, you know what i thought about him because of his performance in um a few good men and that oh, okay you know on the courtroom like that level but I think, again, it would have never happened because of the Joker. But, you know, another one would have been Robin Williams would have been a good casting for Big Wow. Uh, See, and I went a different direction because my thought was Vincent D'Onofrio. Because he actually would look, as the kingpin, you know, recently in Daredevil, mm. he looked a lot like Big Boy from the comic. But I also feel like he's one of those actors, even though he was very young at the time, he disappears into uh, characters. Every time and he does. And every time. And I, he would have come up with something amazing, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, no, um, that's a good pick. Yeah, He would have been great. Now, what about child actors of the time, if we were going to look for somebody to be the kid? Uh, you're gonna laugh. I'm gonna throw this one out there. I would throw out there like Jonathan Taylor Thomas or something like that. <laughs> I think Jonathan Taylor Thomas was like five years old in oh. 1990. Well, then, then, he, then the only other I, option would have been Macaulay Culkin at the time. Ah, oh, Macaulay Culkin, straight from Home Alone. I mean, th- that would have been crazy if that year he was in Home Alone and Dick Tracy. Mm-hmm. That would have been. I for me, you know who I was thinking. He already had the news cap on. Christian Bale. Oh, Newsies, newsies yeah. <laughs> I actually originally wanted to get, like, Max Casella, I think is his name, the guy who was on Doogie Hauser, who's also in Newsies. But he was, like, 30 years old that time. Yeah, he was old. 
even yeah. in, in Newsies. He he wasn't that small, you know. He wasn't he wasn't a small guy. He just played young. So yeah, I don't know. Because uh, you're right, you know, you have all the big child actors that did come up in the '90s. But they Elijah were, Wood would have been another one. I know, but he was in uh, Back to the Future Part 2, like, the year before, I think, and he was tiny in that, too. He was only, like, seven or eight, because mm. that was his first role. Yeah, but he true. probably could have done it, though, actually, now that I think about it. Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood for the kid. All right, so now I think it is time to get into, uh, you know, we talk about what we love, the things that we enjoyed, but you brought up some of these, you know, continuity errors and unanswered questions in the film um, i will mention up top now i actually read the novelization for the film so what's interesting about this is like i said it was written by max allen collins so the guy who was writing the dick tracy comic strip at the time and had been for like 13 years at that point he tells an interesting story in this comic scene magazine that I have that they actually gave him the wrong script initially. So he wrote like half the book and it was based on the wrong story. No, oh, that's and pretty so crazy. He was like, uh, then they gave him the right script and he had to work it all in. And he said, well, I left like 40% of my original writing. And the result was a 90,000 word book. <laughs> like it, it is a, it is a pretty thick novelization. And what he does in it is he actually fills out the world with all the characters from the comic strip that, you know, either don't get screen time or are on the screen but have no lines. And you get, like, all this history because, obviously, he was the most knowledgeable person about that. So, like, even, like, the opera scene, which is nothing. It's like Tracy's at the opera, he leaves, he comes back. Like, there's an actual opera singer character in the Dick Tracy comic strip. So there's a whole scene with that guy in it, you know? And mm. each of, like, the the gangsters at the table before they get shot up. Like, they have whole backstories. And they're, like, you're hearing all about why they're there. You understand the whole point of their, you know, arrival and all those things. And so I found it really interesting. Um, but the most interesting overall was that disney told them you cannot reveal the identity of the blank at the end of your book hmm. and he's like yeah. that's the central mystery of the whole thing and so he basically had to just say like well the blank gets shot and tracy doesn't take off the mask like they don't try to find out who <laughs> who it is you know really and so yeah, basically he just said, it was an audacious plan, Tracy said, still kneeling over the slumped, bleeding form. A plan you damn near pulled off. The city would have had a new ruler. Tracy stayed with the troubled, misguided soul who had been the blank, criminal or not. The blank had spared Tracy's life more than once, waiting for the ambulance. But death came first. Wow. So basically, the blank dies, and they don't care. You know, it's just like, it's totally left ambiguous, and Max Collins is just like, well... I gave enough hints, you know, throughout the film, throughout the story itself. I think people got it. Hmm. Interesting. So, but oh. what were some of the ones that stood out to you? So, you know, first and foremost, one of the continuity issues was, like I said earlier, you know, the kid witnesses the whole shootout and, you know, murders and everything at the beginning of the movie, and it never gets touched upon again. Um, I would have liked to see more about the 
Shake Shack restaurant owner guy. Because <laughs> there was definitely more going on with that guy than he knew uh, than was meets the eye. Uh, there's a lot of backstory to the kid of how he even like gets there, and you know, Dick Tracy goes and beats up the guy that's keeping him in the little hut. But I would like to know more about that and. And like you said, there's certain things like the scene in which, you know, Dick Tracy is in the uh, the shower thing. How does he get there? Like there's just yeah, weird he's, he's time the, jumps, and like it's, yeah, it's, it's, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it, it, it's just like you know, Tracy sets up the dummy, so they're shooting at the dummy, and then he gets uh, lips out of the bath. And then all of a sudden he's standing in it. Why are you standing in it, Tracy? Yeah. Like you could have just pulled him out of it. You didn't need to get in there yourself. And he's trying to shoot the gun, and the stuff's going in his face. And you're just yeah. like, huh? Um, for me, uh, there were two that really stood out. The first is when Tracy is spying on the meeting with all the gangsters. That stunt double, he jumps off the ledge onto a light post, and he totally smashes his face. <laughs> like his head cracks back out of reflex. If you guys watch that. He just like face first onto that, you know, they don't even show him sliding down because I'm sure he was just like out of it. Like it was really weird. Uh, The other is when Big Boy tries to bribe Tracy in the basement, Al Pacino's makeup is different. Yeah, it's running. Smaller chin. He's thinner. He doesn't have like he's got no hump. He's not all hunched over. He's just got a big coat on. But it, he, his hair is different. Like it's, and I that was another question I asked to the at Dick Tracy movie. I was just like, is is that you know a reshoot? And they're like, no. As far as we know, there were no reshoots. So maybe <laughs> they were just at filming as they went, and Al Pacino kept adding more and more to the character. You know, interesting. Um, so yeah. that's one other thing I wanted to point out was some of the stunt work with Warren Beatty's stunt double was not good. Like, you could tell, especially in the end of the movie, the fight between Al Pacino's character and Warren Beatty, you could tell their stunt doubles there, and the, the punching and, and the way they shot it was very far away, so you couldn't see their faces. It was like, these guys did not do any of their own stunts in this movie. They definitely had their stunt doubles doing it, and you could tell. Now, yeah. now as, like, an intelligent filmmaker or, or like, even v- film viewer, you can tell that it's like, yeah, they were using stunt doubles for this. All right. Well, here's the final question then. Do you think this movie should have a sequel? Can you even imagine it working as like a Netflix series? Like, what what is your thought about a Dick Tracy 2? Well, I don't think it would have warranted a sequel, to be honest with you, because all of the villains were pretty much killed off. (laughs) Uh, But I would like to see a modern day Netflix gritty detective story you know on like maybe eight ten episodes reboot nowadays yeah i mean to me i feel like you know it's based on an ongoing comic strip so the possibilities are endless they could just bring in as many villains you know that are new to the story but i don't know if it's a world you really want to revisit i don't think they gave us much to explore i think they wrapped it up and it's fine i think it was lightning in a bottle it was successful for its time but maybe if they did like an animated film in the style of Into the Spider-Verse, if they were able to make it like trippy or groundbreaking in the animation, um, I just don't think the Cops and Robbers tales are unique or interesting unless they were playing it totally for comedy. Right. You know, so maybe it's like a Will Ferrell project or something. Um, if they did do it on Netflix, 
what I would say is make it like an anthology series. So you recast Tracy in each, you know, have a different director for each section. Like it's so it's a unique mini film each time. So you have a black Dick Tracy, you have a female Dick Tracy, you have, you know, whatever it's going to be. And it just makes a really cool thing. Oh, speaking of which, um, I don't know if you were aware of this, but Charles Barkley in the 90s had comic books like there was Charles Barkley versus Godzilla. And there was also a Charles Barkley graphic novel with him on the cover dressed as Dick Tracy. And I he, did not yeah, know that. <laughs> yeah, you, sh- you got to look it up. It is hilarious. I found that at an antique store once, and I was like, this is amazing. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. So, I, Charles I, Barkley. I do like the idea of an anthology. So if you think about it, this, this story started in the 1930s. You could do... A 30s Dick Tracy, a 40s, a 50s, a 60s, a 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and maybe make it, you know, 10, 12 episodes, but each one is a different decade. That would be kind of cool. We should pitch that to Netflix. (laughs) There we go. Hey. Um, And then, you know, last thing I'll just mention in terms of, like, you know, we mentioned there really aren't deleted scenes that we're aware of. Like, in the trailer, I think I noticed, like, one small moment that isn't in the movie. But overall, like, the only thing I'm aware of that really changed in a big way, at least as it's written in the book, is that Dick Tracy's two-way wrist radio, the way that it's actually set up, the way they explain it in the comic strip, is he has a wire that runs up his sleeve that's the antenna. Hmm. And so originally when he meets the kid for the first time, the kid is trying to steal his watch and he tries to take it off, but it's attached to the antenna so he can't get it. And that's why Tracy's like kind of able to grab him at first and then the kid runs off. So that that was like an original concept. But I think they probably figured, you know what, that's too much. You know, like people don't know the continuity of Dick Tracy that heavily, you know, they're not as invested. Um, So... And also, yeah, they but, kind of they played off the idea of Michael Knight's Knight Rider, how he had the watch to talk to Kit. So yeah, and and, and people bought that. So they like oh, I, they could buy just a watch that you can talk to. So <laughs> and I will say, actually, in this day and age, now that we have Apple watches, where it literally is the two way wrist radio, use it as a phone. They did release a Dick Tracy edition smartwatch, so you could actually use it. It's themed in just that way. I can't afford that one right now. It's like $700, but someday, maybe. That's a pretty cool idea, though. That would be pretty neat. Yes, I can't afford that either, but it is cool. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. We hope that you'll go and visit, uh, revisit even, Dick Tracy if you haven't seen it before. And uh, it is definitely worth your time. It's a a visually stunning film. It's just a lot of fun unto itself for the Al Pacino performance alone. Um, and also, uh, we want to let you know, uh, on the Retro Network, uh, I actually am going to have an article coming up that is the weirdest Dick Tracy movie merchandise. So I'll share that with you. You'll get to see some of the stuff that I found from that period. It's uh, pretty wacky. Um, also, obviously, we want to invite you to check us out twice a month, Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, where we go in-depth into the 90s comic book industry through the pages of Wizard Magazine, one issue at a time. We're having so much fun over there, and uh, we can't wait to come back 
And I don't know if it's going to officially be a drive-in episode or just a bonus episode of Wizards, but we are going to be talking about what, Michael? The 1990s Flash with John Wesley Shipp. And I can't tell you how pumped I am to talk about this show. I can't wait. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to have a We've blast. We've been going back and forth uh, to, to each other for weeks. Just uh, sharing this. Did you know this? Showing each other merchandise and other things we're researching. So it's going to be pretty cool. All right. Well, until next time, stay out of trouble. Dick Tracy's watching. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.